some stabilized bridge loans and some long-term loans with no prepayment penalties. So maybe if you're looking at a loan with an interest rate that's a little higher than you'd normally like, but it kind of keeps you flush, we're doing really short-term loans there with the intention of refinancing those out when the rates go back down. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Brittany, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? <laughs> so I will have to say it's a combination. It has to be an ice cream sundae specifically, no nuts, but it has to be just plain Jamocha or any really plain coffee flavor, just the coffee with um, chocolate chip cookie dough Yum. and hot fudge. Combination Yum. of all three together is pretty spe- spectacular. <laughs> I never thought about doing hot fudge and coffee ice cream at the same yeah, time. Yeah, it's amazing. I lived You're... on it when I was pregnant with my first child. Literally <laughs> lived on it. <laughs> hey, it's, it's good calories. Good calories for everybody. <laughs> Um, you're in the Philly area. If we're up that way, where's the best ice cream place we can go get some coffee ice cream? Ooh, so I actually live in the suburbs, and I will say, uh, probably a little bit contrary to most people that live in Philly, the best food and the best ice cream is out in the suburbs, even the best cheesesteak. Um, so there's a little spot called Downtown Scoops. It's right by my house, um, and it's just, they do food trucks, they go to schools, they go to birthday parties. It's pretty fun, and they have the best absolutely the best but we're also really fortunate we have a ton of like really cool little dairy farms out here that make their own ice cream so kind of in the country it's pretty awesome yeah. with a name like downtown scoops i would expect that to be pretty good that's a, yeah. that's a nice little <laughs> boutique name yeah well tell our listeners what's the scoop what do you do today so trx capital is a private money lender so we have capital that we lend out to investors nationwide Um, all to professional uh, investors or first-time investors, but specifically to those who are acquiring real estate for investment. So we're not doing loans to individual homeowners. We are specifically working um, with investors. So we make loans to fix and flip investors. We make loans to builders who are building ground up construction. And we also make loans to investors who are holding rentals long-term. So anything residential, we can touch that. Perfect. Well, I am going to go on my uh, banking mortgage tirade here in a few minutes. But before, and why I love companies like yourself. But before I get there, tell us where did your real estate journey begin? So I have a really fun and unique story. Um, I actually got my first job when I was 14. I was given the opportunity to make cold calls from a phone book at the ripe old age of 14. Um, by the woman who is now my business partner and who has been my mentor for many, many years. Um, And that was not my first job in real estate, but it was my first exposure to uh, work and working with her and our journey together in real estate began um, right then. And we started um, a traditional mortgage brokerage um, probably about five years later, and we've been together ever since. So was the theory there that no one would say no to a 14-year-old girl? Like, is- <laughs> no, I think it was just because I was tena- ten- tenash- tenacious, 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 yeah. tenacious. Yeah, tenacious D. Yeah, tenacious D. And so I actually got invited to go to prom, um, and I'm a child of an oldest child of a single mother, 
And so in order for me to be able to go, I was going to have to figure out how to pay my way to get there. And there was a gym across the street from my high school and I had younger brothers and sisters. So a younger brother and a younger sister. So I thought there's a gym, people go there to work out. They have children that they need to be cared for. And so I thought I'm going to go over there and I'm going to sell this company on why they should hire me to watch the kids in the gym because I babysit all the time. It's something I know and I do and is easy for me. So um, I walked over and the gym was actually under construction. And um, so I met the, this woman who was there. Uh, she was actually helping her brother, whose her brother was the owner of the gym and was renovating it um, and getting ready to reopen. And so she said, you know what? I'm really sorry the gym's not open. There's no kids, there's no members in here yet, but if you really need something to do, uh, there's a phone and there's a phone book. Go ahead, start with the A's. We're doing pre-sales for memberships, so see what you can get in. And so I sat down with a phone and a phone book and I started with the A's. <laughs> oh my gosh, hold on a second. What, what was your pitch? What did that sound like? I, don't, I honestly don't remember, but I got hung up on a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you get paid like a commission for everybody you yep. convert? for or every membership. And then that, that ended, ultimately ended up morphing into um, a side uh, secondary aspect of that where we would take like Ziploc bags and throw a little like free membership coupon in with a little rock and tie it with a ribbon and like chuck it out people's driveways <laughs> yeah. to try and get them in off the flyers. So, you know, it became a whole thing. <laughs> no windows were broken during this exercise. No windows were broken. I think we got chased by dogs, probably a lot of those, but no windows were broken. <laughs> so I, I, I hate to be hung up on this, but like as uh, cold calling can be very daunting to a lot of different people. And at 14, you either see it as extremely scary and don't want to get hung up on, or you just have the blissful ignorance of a teenager and you go in at headstrong. Which, which one were totally you? Totally the latter. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. the latter. <laughs> Last thing I'll ask about this is, do you think that prepared you better for the roles you have today and going out there and evangelizing your brand and your company and trying to sell something? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It made me unafraid to talk to anybody. I mean, I'll have a conversation with anyone about anything. I'll try and sell anyone on anything that I've, if I believe in it. So I think it definitely set the stage for me for sure. Gotcha. Any cold calling in your in your job today? Today, no, but I have done a lot of cold calling in our company as we've been growing. Every time we launch something new, every time we need to get out there and uh, you know re-engage with potential clients, there's a, a huge element of cold calling, especially for uh, the real estate space because there's always new investors coming in, always investors leaving, always other sources of capital. Um, you know, we've done, we've sold assets for banks and institutions. So when we get a weird, tricky portfolio that we need to sell, then you know, we try and have to figure out how to find buyers for that particular asset class or asset type. So there's always an element of picking up the phone and talking to someone new or walking into a conference uh, or a room full of people not knowing anyone and just having to figure out who's who. Yeah, you. Um, so we're trying to teach our son right now that growth is on the other side of being uncomfortable in life. And this is a very good example of you saying, hey, this is what I want to do. Go to prom. I'm, I'm willing to do whatever I can. And now look at you. You've gone out and built several different companies and uh, can talk to anyone, apparently. <laughs> um, well, in the beginning of this, you mentioned that you are private money lending. Um, so I guess take us back and, and help us understand for maybe if that's a new term for some of our listeners, what is private money and how does it differentiate from typically going into a bank and getting a mortgage? So 
There are, I like to think of it as three different buckets of capital really in our space. There's traditional bank where you can, like you said, walk in, apply for a mortgage, uh, whether that be an investment loan or a a loan for a home that you're intending to purchase and live in. Um, And then there's on the other side of that, there's what we call hard money, which is generally gets a more negative stigma. It's usually more aggressive, um, usually more based on the value of the property that that you are going to um, put in and what you are going to get out of that house as opposed to your own personal credit. And we are private money, so we kind of sit in between. So we have institutional capital, we have the scalability to be able to um, obtain uh, additional funds for our our business to lend out because we are more institutional uh, like a bank in the way that we underwrite, but we have the flexibility of the more uh, more traditional hard money aspect because we do keep them, some of our allocated capital uh, on our balance sheet to be able to lend out on projects that we believe in that wouldn't necessarily fit you know, the box of a Wells Fargo or a traditional bank. And that is why I love that people like you and companies like you exist is because in real estate investing specifically, there's a lot of different properties and a lot of different projects that you as an investor might want to do that Wells Fargo is going to say, "Mm, I'm just taking a fee to underwrite this and I'm going to sell it to someone else. And they need these 177 boxes checked before they will take that. And um, the fact that uh, this is on Main Street on the right side instead of the left side, that already unchecks that. So you're we're not interested. But um, you mentioned keeping some loans on your balance sheet. In case that's new for some investors out there, what does that mean? So we raise capital ourselves. So when we say we're keeping it on our balance sheet, it means that we're keeping that as the owner of the loan. We're not going to go have another investor, another bank, either buy that loan from us or we're not going to use our leverage facilities and lines of credit that we have from other large financial institutions to give us leverage on that loan. So meaning if we make a loan for $100,000 to investor ABC, then we have the opportunity and option if that fits all of the boxes to either sell it to another investor and keep the servicing rights, keep the management of, of the paper ourselves, or we could take one of our lines of credit and say, okay, Mr. Wall Street firm, here's a great loan, it's $100,000, you're going to give us now $60,000 so that we can redeploy that to another investor. They're never investing that money in the actual asset itself. It's always staying with us. Um, But those are the two ways that we kind of get additional capital outside of just raising money from friends and family, high net worth individuals, family offices, things like that. Um, So when we keep it on our balance sheet, it's usually something that we can't sell. We can't get um, institutional capital interested in, but we really believe in it. And so we're going to hold on to the loan, always short term, Um, usually something that has something a little tricky with it, something that a traditional underwriter wouldn't love, um, but we have the ability to still make that loan happen. So that's where we kind of toe the line between hard money and banking capital. So you mentioned um, having boxes that your buyers want to see filled as well um, before you would either sell it off or use a line of credit to kind of replenish the funds to go recycle them. Um, Beyond uh, the traditional, like um, the property has to be in a good condition and things like that, what are those determining factors that a borrower or buyer is looking to buy your paper for? Like what do those boxes look like? 
So if we're, if we're doing a loan um, that is going to be sold or it's going to be put on our warehouse line, it's going to be a very safe loan. It's going to um, be something that a bank would be interested in or a credit union or a larger financial, in financial institution would be interested in, but wouldn't have the resources, operational infrastructure to be able to make the loan themselves, or it's just not part of their business model but they want to be in that space. So it's going to be a traditional um, cookie cutter house. It's not going to have anything funky. Not. Um, it's probably not going to have anything that is severe deferred maintenance. They're not going to be looking for an interior, like a full interior rehab. Um, it's going to be pretty vanilla. They're going to want a credit score and a borrower that would qualify for con conventional financing. So they're going to want a strong FICO, probably six, 60, 680 or greater um, on the low end of the spectrum, they're gonna wanna make sure that there's a lot of equity from the borrower into that loan because they're gonna wanna make sure it's as safe as possible for them. Last, most importantly, they're gonna wanna make sure that loan is in, a, in an area where they know there is a ton of buyers for the, for the asset when it's done, right? They're not gonna wanna get stuck with something in a market that they're not comfortable with. They're not gonna get wanna get stuck with an asset that's not gonna really be appealing to even an institutional investor who would maybe put it on a rental portfolio. So, you know, it's not gonna be anything funky. It's not gonna be anything unique. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, earlier you were mentioning a number of different loans that you all do from fix and flip to construction to bridge to, um, uh, even traditional mortgages for investors. What percentage of your portfolio is across each of those? And I'd like to dig into a little bit of like what each of one of those buckets are. So that's a, it's a really, a really good question. And it's very cyclical, just like yeah. real estate is in general, that uh, our portfolio makeup is very cyclical. So right now at this particular time, because of where interest rates are, we have a large amount of our portfolio that is new construction. So a lot of institutional investors have decided that it is easier for them to buy land and build a brand new home and move a tenant in once the home is built. Um, and a lot of builders have realized that they can sell those homes to institutional investors um, and it's easier for them to have a guaranteed exit. So we do a lot of new construction right now um, to both individual builders, home, home builders local um, that are in that market as well as larger institutions who are buying for a larger portfolio. Gotcha. Uh, I would say um, probably six or seven months ago when interest rates rates were a lot lower, the percentage of our portfolio that was long-term financing for rental loans was significantly greater than our bridge portfolio. Um, and in general, our bridge loans are just down across the board um, for traditional fix and flip or fix to hold. And that's really just because the market is so dried up of inventory right now. So it's really hard for investors in general to find that type of asset class. So because of that, our, our portfolio is a little bit light there. What what type of, what markets are you in? Like, obviously, I, I think I saw on the website, you guys are in 17 different markets, but are there a couple that just kind of dominate those uh, 17 states? Talk, talk me through that. So we love the Southeast. Um, me too. We have a... <laughs> We do a lot, I mean, our operations, um, we have an operations team here in Philly, so we do have a lot in um, the kind of tri-state Philly, New Jersey, Delaware area. We don't really love New York just from a lot of regulatory reasons. Um, we have a lot in Texas, and we really love the Carolinas. 
Um, that's not to say that we won't go outside of those markets. We do have a heavy portfolio in California just because that's where we've invested ourselves. And so we know a lot of that market. Um, and it is, can be kind of tricky for some investors who don't really know the area. So we do have a lot in California. Um, but other than that, we're not really opposed to any markets except for certain areas where regulations just make it difficult or sometimes impossible for us to make loans in. Um, but otherwise, we, we pretty much are, are um, return-driven um, and, and borrower-driven. We like to go where our borrowers need capital, um, and especially borrowers that we've worked with in the past and we have a long-standing relationship with. We'll follow them to a new market. You are the first person I've ever had on the podcast that says you invest in California, so I don't want to breeze over that point. How, how did you end up with the investments in California? Well, that's where we're, that's where my partners are based. Um, so we started the, fir the first company we started was um, in Southern California, and we were literally lending only to investors in Southern California. And it's because we knew it. We could drive the properties ourselves. We could you know get there fast. We could do our own diligence. Um, and because we know the market well there now, after 20 years, uh, we're able to keep keep lending there. But where inventory is very scarce. So. Yeah. And I think there's, um, there's the key, right? Everybody that I've had on the show that says, you know, we don't invest in California regulations, yada, yada, whatever it is, they don't live there. And right. I think, um, a couple of folks I've had on the show who live there and even do developments there say having the localized institutional knowledge to know like, oh, you don't really want that house because of the way it is and hard to get to and different things like that can make or break you. I will also say that California is a huge appreciation state. Make no mistake about it. If you would have just yeah. bought two houses in uh, 1990 and just held on to those guys for, for 40 years, you'd be multimillionaires over. So You're telling me. <laughs> every market has its pros and cons, I think. And uh, just because you hear the bad press about bigger states or bigger cities that might have regulations doesn't mean there's not people doing deals and making money in those states. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I'm kind of interested to tease out of you right now is how are you seeing interest rates right now? So obviously in the past uh, year and a half, 18 months or so, interest rates have risen dramatically from the Fed. Um, that is affecting downstream interest rates on everything from real estate to cars to credit cards. What are you all seeing in today's market? And then, uh, yeah, we'll just, what are you seeing? I mean, I don't think it's, it's definitely not, um, not a secret, it's not something that's not well known that interest rates are kind of going all over the place. Um, so we, we, we do fluctuate and change with the market. Our cost of capital changes when we have our different warehouse lines. So we kind of have to adjust with the market as it goes. Um, we do, like I said before, we do have the balance sheet capital. So that kind of stays the same, our cost of capital to those investors and, the, and those that we have kind of pooled together in that uh, capital stack. They, they're just looking for a certain return. So that is a little bit more stable for us, um, which is why we keep it, why we like to have it. Cash is king. To be able to put money out that we can control is, is really game-changing for us as a lender. Um, but as far as interest rates in, in general and where we're seeing those go, I mean, um, it's, it's affecting every asset class. It's not just affecting single-family it's affecting multifamily. I think the other thing I'm noticing more so even than interest rates that are increasing is um, other lenders getting more skittish on leverage amounts and really scaling back their advance rates on value 
because they're worried about markets um, correcting and having some kind of you know dip in values and then the, being stuck with something that may be over levered. Um, so I think in the comp the combination of the two is really just making it difficult for investors to find deals in general. Um, but I'm finding that that makes people that much more creative and um, and that much more um, intentional, right? They're getting the right types of deals. They're saving. Um, they're not letting their capital kind of control where they go because they are uh, watching that more. And it's making people a little bit more aggressive and creative. So we're seeing a lot of investors who were doing fix and flip or even fix to rent um, moving into that kind of partnership structure with local builders to do new construction because they can be more mindful of controlling cost because they're getting economies of scale. So they're getting creative and finding other ways to save when the interest rates are rising. The other thing that we're able to do that I think is important um, that I don't know a lot of other lenders who are doing is, um, is some stabilized bridge loans and some long-term loans with no prepayment penalties. So maybe if you're looking at a loan with an interest rate that's a little higher than you'd normally like, but it kind of keeps you flush, we're doing really short-term loans there with the intention of refinancing those out when the rates go back down. Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Yeah, um, I've got a question, two questions that kind of stem to my mind and there is one how are you looking at your arvs when you're underwriting a loan so you mentioned like readjusting arvs and how much your other competitors are willing to lend on arvs how are you all looking at that right now i guess what's your average arv across your portfolio start there so um most of what i look at i would say is probably right around 65. our our total wow. loan to after parry value is 65. that's really on the new construction stuff because you have a little bit more bang for your buck there um on the bridge stuff we are looking we'll go up to 75 of future value on our bridge loans um and so we can get a little bit more aggressive there and um, we use local appraisers we don't have to get stuck in the um cycle of using an AMC. Uh, so we're not just kind of shopping um, for the fastest, quickest, lowest priced value. Um, we really like to go to local appraisers who really know the markets, who really know um, how to value those types of products, whether it be block by block or county by county or zip code by zip code, and make sure that we're really getting the local knowledge so that we know really, really, really confidently where that's gonna, where that's gonna land. And that makes us a little bit more flexible. So if we can see and we know that there's really a strong exit strategy, or we know that the property ultimately is going to be turned really quickly and held for rent, and we know that the institutional capital still will go up to you know 80% of value on a rate and term refinance, then we can get a little bit more flexible. So we're really kind of watching where that exit, exit financing is also, and watching to make sure we have the exit on both sides, whether it be a, a resale or a, or a rental. 
Gotcha. You mentioned also about um, no prepayment penalties. And I thought that was interesting because I think in the, the commercial space right now, what we're seeing a lot of is folks are having their expiration dates on their loans come up in 2024 and 2025. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think a lot of them would be willing to make the trade that sure, Prime might be uh, 6% right now. I know I can get agency at 6 but I'll take seven right now as long as you tell me there's no prepayment penalty yeah. because that's going to give me the flexibility to one, lock in, and then two, refinance when I feel like it's favorable in my conditions. And unfortunately in the commercial space, you know, you have these yield to maintenance uh, prepayment penalties and you're doing the calculations and you're like, shoot, it could be millions of dollars to refinance this loan. So I can't take advantage if the market shifts in my favor to lower interest rates. So I guess just talk us through, like, how are you seeing borrowers respond to this idea that, yeah, you might pay a little bit higher interest rate, but I'm not going to penalize you if you want to refinance or anything like that. So we actually do a calculation for them. We put it into our funding sheets. We put it into our into our underwriting analysis so we can kind of show them that, where that breaking point is. We can show them if they have a step-down prepayment penalty or if they have a yield maintenance loan, what that's going to cost them it, ultimately over you know maybe a, a three-year period and then show them what the interest, interest increase in that over that same three-year period is. And almost always it works out in their favor. Um, and then we also have the option to be able to put the interest only component on a long-term loan as well. So if they want to even get a little bit more savings, you know, on there, maybe it's a five year interest only period, knowing that really in five years, they're probably going to refinance it anyways. Um, then we can kind of show them how their, how their cash flow um, saves them a little bit more there uh, when we put those types of loans together. Even if maybe you're looking at a, seven and a quarter rate instead of a seven percent rate but it's an interest only option in that loan payment then it gives you a little bit more of that flexibility and that's kind of where we educate the investors that maybe need a little bit more visual uh, representation of what that looks like yeah that's smart i mean it's often said like marry the property date the rate um and essentially what that is, is meaning is like don't get so caught up on this quarter point because i mean in the single family space you're talking like tens of dollars being right. added to your mortgage uh, if you are off by a quarter bip or something like that. Um, whereas if you lose out on a deal, like a home run deal, because you're worried about a rate, then you're you're walking over pennies. Uh, what is it? Walking over dollars to pick up pennies or pick whatever pennies, they call yeah. it. <laughs> a lot of analogies coming from this side of the table. None of them, none of them delivered well right now. <laughs> Um, the last question I kind of had is really around the balance sheet. So how do you all think about managing your balance sheet in this type of environment? Um, you are pretty close to a bank in that sense where you have to think about how can I use this dollar either and recycle it or get it off my balance sheet so that I can go recapitalize that dollar at a higher interest rate and things like that. And um, I think most of our listeners know what happened to SVB earlier this year was not necessarily that they uh, were poorly managed. They were buying 30-year treasuries, but those 30-year treasuries they had at 2%, and then all of a sudden they ran up to 5 so they showed a market loss on their balance sheet. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you kind of view that? Talk us through how you make sure you don't step into that type of a problem. I'm just always interested in learning from other folks that do that at a high level. 
I think it's a little different for us just because of where we raise, you know, how we raise our capital and, you know, the balance sheet that we have, everything we, we put on our balance sheet is super short term. So, you know, we're constantly looking at where, how that's going to sell, when that's going to sell, and, and also multiple different exit strategies. At the end of the day, we always look at the fact, you know, what are we going to have to do with this if we have to take it back for some reason? Um, and so it's a little bit different for us in managing that because we have raised capital that kind of sits at a pretty solid, consistent cost. And so as long as we are putting out our loans that are coming in above that and we're meeting the hurdles for our investors, we don't have too much um, that we have to really juggle there. And it's a, it's a smaller amount that we put on our balance sheet. Now, when we are looking at how we want to move our assets from different warehouse lines and things like that, that's where it gets tricky for us for sure, because we want to make sure we're optimizing where we're putting properties off the balance sheet. Um, and we actually have some tools that we use and some some resources that we have with a couple different third party providers that like really help us optimize that. So we don't have to have a full capital markets team because um, that would be a little bit of overkill for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are those tools? Curious. Are, are they homegrown or are they off the shelf? Um, no. So we we um, there's a couple different um third-party providers that we work with that also help, also help us do third-party diligence that have created platforms that basically optimize that for you. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it took me a while to kind of understand what you were saying because I'm involved in a couple of these funds where, hey, um, you know, we're paying you a 10% pref uh, or a 13% pref and we're loaning out our capital at 12%. And I was like, wait a minute, how does that work? And it's because you're juggling this, right? And I know that I have to pay my my investors 13% and I can borrow, let's say at 7%. So right. my overall capital is actually costing me somewhere in the 10. Sorry if the public math is off there, but the, my blended rate is essentially exactly. this. And that's where I got really interested in the space of like, oh, wow, you're just arbitraging capital. That's interesting. Yep. Um, just because we're going to be published on the internet and it'll be posted forever, I'm going to ask you to dig into your crystal ball and give us some predictions here. So as someone who's kind of seeing um, different parts of the real estate market from single family to development to some of these bridge lo um, in-house loans, you're seeing different states of the market from California to Pennsylvania. Um, talk us to where, where do you think we end up next year or going into 2025 in the real estate market? Um, I think I'm a little bit less conservative. I'm, a li I'm not. I'm not as worried um, as I think many others are uh, as to where we're going to be next year. I think that real estate is continually cyclical, and you will always. I, that's why I love real estate. I love the fact that you know if you have a hard, tangible asset and you are really willing to ride that out that there is appreciation coming and just kind of have to ride the wave. Um, that's one of the beautiful things about having been in this business for so long. I saw all of the crazy fallout, you know, from the crisis and all the way through how that, how we recovered there. I don't think we're ever going to be in that terrible of a state where our, you know, inventory has gone down and our asset values have tanked. I don't think that we're ever going to be in that place again. I think there is a dip. There's going to be definitely something that's, um, you know, kind of correcting where values are, but I don't, I'm not really afraid of it. I mean, it's just kind of sit there and enjoy the ride really and hold on. Um, but as far as a prediction on where we land, um, I, I really don't think we're going to see 
anything that's too glaring and scary come out in the next year. Yeah. Is that because you think there's still liquidity in the system from these big institutions as well? I think it's because we we didn't we didn't we don't have the same trauma in the banking system in the underwriting system that we had before we're not everyone is so much more careful because of that in how they're underwriting that i think everyone's been conservative enough that we're not going to have that huge tank in value um and we're not going to have the huge tank in defaults even with even post covid you know um the default rate was not as was not where I think we expected it to be post COVID, right? So um, people are are motivated to stay in their homes. People are motivated to to have the the benefit of home ownership, and I think that because of that, um, and because of the fact that we are more conservative in our underwriting than we were before, we're not going to have that huge crazy crisis. Um, that's just my opinion, though. Sorry. Yeah, you use the word trauma and underwriting. Uh, I'm going to use the word reckless in underwriting. Um, <laughs> yes. I think we're getting to the same point, though, that uh, after 2008, we almost overcorrected so hard that we were very conservative in the way that we underwrote specifically real estate and how we lent out on it. Yeah. We got a little drunk in 2021 with, I saw like 105% LTV loans going out and 95% loans going out on big multifamily properties and things like that. Um, but certainly we have uh, corrected tremendously on uh, the way we underwrite and lend out capital in the real estate space, I feel like, since 2008. Yeah, I mean, I have seen some scary things. I've seen 80% LTV cash out kind of played with out there that kind of scares me a little bit. We're not going to go there. So, um, and if someone is, then kudos to them. But um, that, that makes me a little worried. Um, but I think we're getting a little bit over, over uh, our skis um, in some areas, but definitely not as, um, not as much as, you know, it could have been. So, yeah. Well, Brittany, fantastic conversation. I want to take you now to our last round. We're calling this the four toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently? That's given you a paradigm shift. Um, I don't get to read very much anymore. <laughs> so I will, go, I will go with my favorite book. Um, and that is, uh, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Oh, okay. Nice. That is uh, completely unexpected, but much appreciated. Because <laughs> um, th- everybody uses a business book, but um, yeah. not a classic novel. Our I spend enough one- time in business all day, yeah. every day. It's all I talk about unless I'm with my kids. So if I read, I want something that's going to take me away. It's like I say, even the Pope keeps work at work. <laughs> Our second one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I've ever received would be um, that no is the second best answer I can hear. What does that mean? So I, um, I think young in my career, especially in sales, it's just, yes, we can do it. Yes, yes, we can do it. And then you overpromise and you underdeliver, and it's just a terrible experience for everyone. So I had um, a client that I significantly disappointed with over-promising and under-delivering. And he told me, listen, we're going to get through this. We're going to move on. We're still going to work together. But going forward, the second best thing you can tell me is no. Yeah. I, um, I tend to agree. I've, I've built my career in sales. And uh, one thing I hate is when people just 
you work with them for months on trying to get something done and then boom, they, you just never hear from them again. Yeah. And it's like, just tell me, no, it's yeah. okay. I'm yeah. not going to be mad. I'll move on to the next thing, but I would rather right. know than just sit here in limbo and they think you're doing you a favor, but you're not. Um, I'm going to make sure I tell our kids that this tonight too. <laughs> no, no is actually the second best thing you can hear. Um, our third one is what are you most proud of in your life? I'm proud of my people. Um, professionally and personally, I'm just really proud um, and honored by the people that I get to surround myself with. We've worked really hard to stay together. My team has stayed together for 20 years um, as we've grown. And I'm really proud of the people that I keep close in my personal life too. My family, my friends, um, they're, my, they're my everything. And I'm really, really, really proud and honored to still have them around. Yeah, <laughs> Sticking with me. They're probably proud to see your from your growth too, from a fourteen year old <laughs> cold calling gym memberships to building to building another company. Our fourth and last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? If I could sit down with anyone, it would be J.K. Rowling. The author of okay. the Harry Potter series. <laughs> you you told me that it was gonna be a unique one when we first started. And um, I I gotta say that's the uh, first time we've heard that. I By the way, just I would just love to pick her brain and and understand her creativity and how she created this entire world. It's just fascinating to me. That and by the way, like a self-made billionaire, right? Right. Like, and who started in her forties? It's not right. like she was. Uh, it's not like she along was the way exactly. and compounding. It. Yeah. yeah, she's inspirational, Respect. and she and my kids and I get to share reading her books together, which is just super special. So you know, there's a lot of reasons why I think that she would be fascinating to sit and talk to. Yeah. Respect. Um, all right. Well, Brittany, fantastic conversation. I appreciate the time. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and just get in touch with you or learn about all the things you got going on with your loan programs, where is the best place we can point them? So we can get back to you on uh, any social platform. So we're Instagram is Brittany underscore Fairweather. Um, we are at trxcapfund.com. Um, you can reach out to us there or LinkedIn um, is Brittany Fairweather. Perfect. We will leave all those in the show notes. And then Brittany, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.